Good morning, friends. My name is Justin. I serve as one of the pastors here at Christ City, and I want to extend a warm welcome to you, whoever you are, wherever you are, and wherever you've been, uh, whatever you're carrying with you today. I hope that in some small way, our gathering this morning has been and will be an opportunity for you to encounter the living God and to experience the life of God in your own life. We're kicking off a new series today that will take us through to the end of November. It's called The Beatitudes, God's Kingdom Among Us. As we enter um, the final months of the year that has been 2020, uh, we find ourselves still in the midst of so much chaos and unsettledness, with now over a million global COVID-19 deaths and over 200,000 here in the U.S. alone. We have climate change contributing to raging wildfires and historic storm systems. We have racist policies and fear-based politics, voter suppression and disenfranchisement, as well as, well as the loss of jobs and livelihoods and, <clears throat> and loved ones. So much loss. Uh, all of it continuing to wreak havoc on our minds, on our health, on our relationships, on our families, and on our world. And in this season, particularly uh, with a significant election actually already underway, we're choosing to center ourselves on Jesus' opening address in the Sermon on the Mount, on what it reveals about God, about God's kingdom, and about, therefore, who we are called to be. Uh, I'm looking forward to these coming weeks for a number of reasons. First, because I think it's absolutely necessary, absolutely vital for us right now as the politics of our country are center stage to remember that it is the politics of God that ought to define us. Second, because I think this is a natural continuation of our last series where we explored the threefold calling at our core as a church and as Christians to love God, to love one another, and to love our neighbors. Here in the Beatitudes, we will be pushed beyond those generalities and into the specifics that Jesus was addressing and the specifics that lie before us. And third, I'm excited because over the course of this series, we'll have a few guest preachers, friends of our church who will be bringing the word and coming from different backgrounds, reflecting different contexts and offering different perspectives in different styles of preaching. And so we'll get to see and hear and, I pray, experience even more of the richness and diversity and fullness of God's kingdom. Now today, I'm going to be laying the groundwork for this series, for these next couple of months. And I'm also going to be talking about the first of the Beatitudes, which is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let me jump right in with a question. Who would you say is blessed today? Who would you say is blessed today? Now, you might not use that word. I mean, different translations of the Bible use happy or joyful, but maybe who you think is blessed is revealed in how, how you envy their situation their resources or their relationships, their status, their job, their home, their life. Who would you say is blessed today? Who do you think our world or our culture or our nation would lift up as blessed? 
those with a lot, a lot of money or power or success. And I think it's quite normal to equate blessing with things going well. After all, the very notion of blessing, it carries connotations of favor, of success, of flourishing, doesn't it? So it's much easier to be happy when things around us are going well. But listen to how Scottish theologian William Barclay understood the word blessed. This is what he said. Makarios, which is the Greek word, describes the joy which has its secret within itself, that joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained, that joy which is completely independent of all the chances and the changes of life. The Beatitudes speak of that joy which seeks us through our pain, that joy which sorrow and loss and pain and grief are powerless to touch, that joy which shines through tears and which nothing in life or death can take away. I want to go where that blessing, that joy is. I need that blessing, that joy right about now, and and I would venture to guess that you might as well. In the Beatitudes, we find Jesus proclaiming, naming where that blessing, where that joy, that flourishing from God can be found. A similar formulation can be found in the very first verses of the Old Testament book of Psalms. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. It's meant to be a signpost. This is the way to go. This is where the good life can be found. Now, right before we get to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, there are two things Jesus says, which are important to know because they frame the Beatitudes. Okay? First of all, Jesus says in chapter 4, verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, we've talked about the kingdom of heaven before. Uh, oftentimes, we'll use the term kingdom of God. It's, it's the same thing, but Matthew was writing for a primarily Jewish audience, and they preferred not to speak the name of God out of reverence and respect. And so Matthew used the term heaven, that is where God dwells. The kingdom of God was, is, where God is king. Where God reigns. Where what God wants to happen actually happens. Where God's blessing and favor rests. And for many Jews living in first century Palestine, which was then an occupied outpost of the Roman Empire, this meant Seeing the kingdom of God meant kicking out the oppressors and returning the power to the people of God. Many believed that this would and could only happen through violent conflict. It was a change of regime. It was a change of situation, change of fortunes. Not unlike when the people of Israel were freed from slavery in Egypt and then led to the promised land by Moses. This was a a message of hope for a downtrodden and disappointed people. Deliverance, liberation, salvation is here. But attached to it was a command to repent, to turn around, to change your mind, to change your ways. I wonder how would our choices look different if we truly believed God was near? 
How do our choices right now reveal what we believe about God? Repent, Jesus has said, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The second thing Jesus said prior to preaching the words of the Sermon on the Mount was to some fishermen, two fishermen, Simon, Peter, and Andrew. He said in chapter 4, verse 19, he said, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And then we're told he went throughout the region, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, that God's kingdom was coming and God's kingdom was at hand, and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. And it says, great crowds followed him from all over the area. Now at that point, he withdraws from the crowd, actually steps away. He goes up a mountain, his disciples gather around him, and then he begins to teach them. Beginning with the sermon, beginning with the sermon with the Beatitudes, a series of statements about who is truly blessed. Now, there's a way to look at the Beatitudes, uh, especially if you uh, treat the Bible as an, an instruction manual, to think, you know, we should read them and then just be more like that. But that turns them into a list of unattainable ideals. We look at them and we'll say, those are great, I guess, but. I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that that's realistic for the world that we're living in. And then maybe guilt starts creeping in because we can't live up to it. And then we spiral into shame because we're not good Christians or whatever. But but, but that's not what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes are not a a formula for flourishing. It's not a how-to guide as if to say, be poor in spirit so that you can gain God's favor. I mean, talk about vending machine spirituality. How self-serving and transactional and dishonoring both to God and ourselves. Rather, I would suggest we ought to look at the Beatitudes and at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole through the lens of the central theme of Jesus' teaching, which was the kingdom of heaven. And since the very first Beatitude has the kingdom of heaven in it, let's see if we can learn more from that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. There is within that sentence and within the Beatitudes as a whole both comfort and challenge for us. Let me start with comfort first. Now, in Luke's gospel, there's a similar set of sayings, a similar set of Beatitudes. Uh, Only Luke's version of this first Beatitude says, Blessed are the poor. Not blessed are the poor in spirit, but blessed are the poor. And that has led some to suggest Jesus was only concerned with economic justice and that Matthew was soft-pedaling, spiritualizing, over-spiritualizing Jesus' message by using the poor in spirit. But actually, both the economic and the spiritual are included in this saying, because God cares about all of us, every part of us. See, Jesus was likely drawing from the prophet Isaiah, a favorite source of his, And in Isaiah chapter 61, the prophet says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, some translations say the oppressed or the meek. The theologians note that there was a development in Jewish thought about the poor. At first, to be poor, it meant to be in literal material need. But gradually, Because the poor, the needy, had no refuge but God, poverty then came to have spiritual overtones, and it came to be identified with a humble dependence on God. Other Old Testament instances of the word poor are translated as as suffering 
or desperate or needy or lowly in spirit. To be poor in the Bible is often because of one's vulnerable circumstance to know one's need of God. The poor in the Bible often relied more on God. Here in Matthew 5, the Greek word translates to the very empty ones. The very empty ones, those who are crouching, doubled over with need, scrabbling in the dirt for anything to sustain them. It refers to the lowest, the least, the destitute. Now, the poor in the Bible were often listed with orphans, widows, and immigrants. These were four populations of people who were, in the society of the day, particularly vulnerable to oppression and marginalization. Now, some things don't change all that much. You think about immigrants today who are otherized or feared or shunned, described in dehumanizing terms and then locked in cages. Think about orphans today, separated from family, vulnerable to trafficking and exploitation. Think about the poor today. What are the narratives that often get attached to them? That they haven't worked hard enough? That that they've done something wrong? That they don't deserve a better life? Yet throughout scripture and throughout history, God shows a particular care for these groups. There's a term in some Christian traditions, the preferential option for the poor. That is that God cares particularly for those who are poor. Or to be more precise, those who have been made poor, unless you believe God created us to be unequal. The late Baptist ethicist Glenn Stassen wrote, the poor are blessed not because they are morally perfect, not because poverty is a better state, but because God especially wants to rescue the poor. God knows that people who have power often use that power to advance their own privileges and to seek more power. The poor get pushed aside and dominated. If you are poor, just one illness, just one divorce, just one addiction, or just one job loss can keep you from paying your bills get you evicted, and even make you homeless. And we've seen on full display this year, the veil has been peeled back, how unequal we really are. And how those who were already vulnerable economically have borne the brunt of those losses. Whether it's COVID and health outcomes, whether it's education and resources for schools or learning pods, whether it's climate change and the ability to build back when your home's been destroyed. I've shared before about an encounter that Rowan Williams, who was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, had while touring a hospital in Bethlehem. It was in an impoverished part of the city, and so he was somewhat surprised to see high-quality care and facilities. And when he asked the hospital director about it, the response came back, the poorest deserve the best. Williams was so struck by this. He said, the poorest deserve the best. When you hear that, I wonder if you can take in just how revolutionary it is. They do not deserve what's left over when the more prosperous have had their fill or what can be patched together on a minimal budget as some sort of damage limitation. And they don't deserve the best because they've worked for it and and everyone agrees they've earned it. They deserve it simply because their need is what it is. And because where human dignity is least obvious, 
it's most important to make a fuss about it. Where human dignity is least obvious, it's most important to make a fuss about it. That, I believe, is God's perspective. This is how I would translate this beatitude. Joyful are the desperate for God and those in need, for God is already among them. Those who have not have no backup plans, no alternatives, no other options. Many of us have enough safety, enough security, enough education, enough connections, enough things to not need God. And those privileges, those blessings even, can act as buffers. If we're not careful, gradually separating us from the desperation that might drive us to God. This season has been a hard one, filled with much loss and grief, even as there have been, and I hope for you too, glimmers of hope and and moments of sunlight. Back in April, we we had a lament service, way back in April. We named the losses we had experienced over the first six weeks of COVID-19. Now we are over six months in, and the losses have continued. Among us, Christ City, are stories of lost grandparents, mothers and fathers, cousins, aunts, and uncles. We have lost ones who never even had the chance um, to take their first breath. Marriages and families have experienced fraying and falling apart. There have been the losses for us in schools and with rhythms and dreams of what we hoped this fall would look like. There's so many things outside of our control. We have friends and family who have been pummeled by wildfires and, 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 and threatened by hurricanes, her, her historic storm systems. Now, those situations will not necessarily lead us to God. We could just as easily turn to distraction or addiction or escapism, to denial and anger at all the wrong things. But within the darkness, within the darkness, there is always the invitation to step toward the light. It's always there. There's something vital to our faith about recognizing our desperate need of God. And for our desperation, that can lead us to cry out in humility and dependence to the God who saves, to the God who is bigger than all of our situations, to the God who loves us and desires our good. Here then is the word of comfort. Why are the poor and the poor in spirit blessed? Because where God's image in human beings is most tarnished, most ground in the dirt, most mistreated, most in need, it's important to make a fuss about it, which is what God does. Because that's who God is. So blessed are the poor in spirit already, for theirs is already the kingdom of heaven. Because God already dwells with them. Because God already sees them. Because God is already working to deliver them. Let me offer then that word of comfort that this beatitude brings to those in desperate need. I don't need to lay out all of the situations encompassed in our body among those who are watching and listening. You you know who you are. You know who you are. Well, know this too. God sees you. God hears you. God knows what you're experiencing. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit.
I want you to hear that. I want you to feel that. I want you to know that reassurance that God is with you. God is with you who are brokenhearted. God is with you who are desperate. God is with you who are poor and poor in spirit. God meets us in our need. That is the kind of God revealed in Jesus. And let me say, if, you, if you're watching or listening to this and you, know, you don't consider yourself a Christian or you've been turned off or hurt by Christians or you're not sure about all of this religious stuff, but this kind of God, this, this kind of comfort, this kind of word, this vision of life and liberation sounds intriguing. Well, let me say to you, come Come on in. There is life here. Email me. I would love to talk more with you. But I would be remiss if I didn't also offer the challenge of God's kingdom. The Beatitudes reveal to us the nature of God's kingdom. They show us who is truly blessed in God's economy, under God's governance. Jesus is sparking in his disciples, in us as well, an imagination for something different, something true, something divine. And in our day, as in Jesus' day, this vision runs counter to the values and the lies we're fed by the world we live in. I want you to imagine that there was to be developed a coronavirus vaccine, one that had been tested properly and not politicized, one that somehow we knew we could trust, one that somehow we knew would work. Now, imagine it was free, and I know that is stretching the limits of your skepticism, but come, come with me here. Now, imagine that the developers of the vaccine said it would be deployed first, not to the rich, not to the politicians, not to the athletes, not to those who are able to get COVID tests every day, not to those who have top quality health care, but to the poor and to the sick and to the homeless to the elderly and infirm, to the undocumented, to the farm workers and the factory workers, to the grocery clerks and the delivery drivers, to those without jobs and without health insurance. It would seem too good to be true, wouldn't it? It would require a decent amount of mental gymnastics, and even then it would be hard to grasp. For Jesus' first disciples, the Beatitudes did the same thing upending this idea of a military nationalistic worldly kingdom, replacing the rich with the poor, the mighty with the meek, the full with the hungry, and so on. Philosopher Dallas Willard observes that the law and the prophets in Jesus' time had been twisted around to authorize an oppressive, though religious, social order that put glittering humans, the rich, the educated, the well-born, the popular, the powerful, and so on, in possession of God. Jesus' proclamation clearly dumped them out of their privileged position and raised ordinary people with no human qualifications into the divine fellowship by faith in Jesus. Jesus' disciples, the ones who were hearing these Beatitudes, were the very people he was naming. These were not people of means, of education, of high caliber by worldly standards. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, look at your situation when you were called, brothers and sisters. By ordinary human standards, not many were wise, not many were powerful, not many were from the upper class. But God chose what the world considers foolish to shame the wise. God chose what the world considers weak to shame the strong. And God chose what the world considers low class and low life, what is considered to be nothing, to reduce what is considered to be something to nothing. 
So no human being can brag in God's presence. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. He became wisdom from God for us. And this means that He made us righteous and holy, and He delivered us. It always starts with God. It always starts with God. But God didn't just tell us what was good and right and blessed. God showed us. God showed us what it looked like to make a fuss about human dignity where it was least obvious by becoming one of us. And not just any one of us. God in Jesus became poor. He could have chosen to have been born to a princess in a palace, raised in the lap of luxury with the finest education, with resources, with influence, with connections. He could have wowed us but he chose to be born into poverty. And we know this because when when Joseph and Mary took the the baby Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, they offered the sacrifice of the poor, two turtle doves or a pair of young pigeons. We know Jesus was poor because when Jesus and his disciples eat the heads of grain in a field that isn't theirs, that's not what they're critiqued for because there was a provision in the law to ensure the poor had food to eat. Jesus was poor. When Jesus saw that widow put her two copper coins in the offering box, I bet he knew how much of a sacrifice that was. Not just because he was God, he knew her situation, but because of his own family experience. The God who created the universe didn't just become a human being, he became a poor, exploitable, and exploited human being. Because God is not just about deliverance from above, but about liberation from among. This is how womanist theologian and ethicist Stacy Floyd Thomas puts it. Jesus' humanity was manifestly numbered with those oppressed. The challenge launched by Jesus was and continues to be a political statement. This is about ultimate allegiance to God's kingdom, which puts one on a collision course with the values and systems of empire structures. The Sermon on the Mount was a transgressive act of overthrowing the tables that had been prepared by the privileged, creating clarity out of dissonance and community out of chaos by using dissonance and chaos as the prime movers. By voluntarily and visibly aligning himself with the multitudes of human beings existing on the margins as indicated in the sermon's articulated list of the Beatitudes, Jesus violates the intrinsic logic that the chief concern of the privileged and powerful is the preservation of their protected status in the world. The challenge that blessed are the poor in spirit lays before us is to serious self-examination and to solidarity. Are we caring for those God cares for? Are we listening? Are we loving? Are we looking out for the people and the places where human dignity is most often disregarded. Because God cares for those who are desperate for Him. God cares for those who are in need. God cares for those whose human dignity is most often disregarded. That's where God is. And the invitation to us is to align our values with God's, to be and to be among and to be for those same people. That's, that's why we as a church have sought to press in 
to gender equity and racial justice and queer inclusion. Not because we're trying to be politically correct, but because these are ways for us right now to follow the example of Jesus in making a fuss about those whose human dignity, whose whose image of godness has historically been and still presently is being diminished even in the church. For women and for people of color and for LGBTQ folks, And that's why we champion women leaders and women preachers. That's why we say black lives matter and why we engage in issues around race and justice in our neighborhood and in our city. That's why we say unequivocally that everyone, no matter your sexual orientation or gender identity, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved and have life and be part of us as we seek to be who God has called us to be. Jesus' words ought to make us uncomfortable. Because if you're listening to this, if you're watching this, all of us have privilege of a sort. The question is, how will we use whatever privilege we have to spend it down on behalf of those who are in need? In Alice Walker's poem, Blessed Are the Poor in Spirit, this is how she ends it. Jesus was, as usual, talking about solidarity about how we join with others and in spirit feel the world and suffering the same as them. This is the kingdom of owning the other as self and the self as other that transforms grief into peace and delight. I and you might enter the kingdom of right here, through this door, in this spirit, Knowing we are blessed, we might remain poor. In light of these beatitudes, in light of of this beatitude, in light of the revelation and reminder of who God is in Jesus, who God is for, who God loves and cares for and challenges us to care for, how then shall we live? I want to invite you to, to ponder that, to meditate on that to consider that this week, to pray through that, to to look around you and listen to what uncomfortable next step God may be asking you to take with God's spirit. To be where God is, for that is where life is. Church, may we find, may we find both comfort and conviction in the God who is with and for and among the poor in spirit. God, whose kingdom belongs to such as these. May we find ourselves where God is, for there the blessing and the life and the joy and the strength to stand and the kingdom of heaven are also. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, one of the things that I would, one of the ways that I would like us to end, um, I'd actually wanted to preach on these verses uh, today, but I ran out of time. So um, the thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that multiple points, Jesus does tell us that we need to put into practice the words that he teaches. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives this story about the, the, one, the, the, the man who built a house on the rock as the one who is putting into practice the words that Jesus has taught. So there are things for us to do as well, not just a perspective change, although that is a big part of it. And so I want us to read together 
from Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. And here I want to invite you as you're able to stand to reverence the reading of God's word. I know it's a little bit out of order, but let this be the benediction. Let this be the word that you hear as you go out into this week. From Matthew 5, immediately following the Beatitudes, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden, and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand, and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people, so they can see the good things you do, and praise your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We love you. We'll see you next time.